0: Contra is friction.
1: Contra is. Contra
0: is nuanced. Contra Contra is is transgressive.
1: Good trouble. Contra Contra is is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a
0: space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamray. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In this first episode of the podcast, we talk to design researcher Sarah Hendren, who teaches at Olin College of Engineering about disability, critical design, and poetic creation. Sarah and I talk about her work in the fields of critical design and assistive technology, including how she came to this work, how she's thinking about strategy and practice, and also her current work on bridging the humanities with STEM education. Here's the interview. Sarah is one of my oldest friends and colleagues in disability studies, and she's also the person who first taught me about critical design, so I'm really excited to talk to her. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, so good to be here. Yeah, so for the last couple of days, we've been here at Olin, and I just wanna point out to our audience that we're in the library right now, which is a really just spectacular place. Um, it's a place that's full of books, aquaponics, aquariums, a wood shop in the middle of a bunch of book stacks.
1: 3D printers. 3D yeah. printers, yeah.
0: sewing. All of this stuff kind of lives together. Um, what what a just like spectacular design this place is. Um, So I thought we could just start out by talking about your intellectual journey because you have such an interesting set of skills and um, ways of approaching material culture and the built environment. So do you wanna tell our listeners a little bit about how you ended up here doing what you do? Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is about a 25 year span that I'll tell you about in a short amount of time. I was a visual arts, um, fine arts, and painting major in college and um, ended college with a certain set of dissatisfactions about um, the limits of studio art and gallery-based art, but I didn't really quite have a language for that. And after I spent a few years working, both teaching and in education research, I thought, well, what I really need is some training in the history of ideas. How do we get to the assumptions that we do in making culture? And this was a kind of move on my part to engage my curiosity about social politics but I didn't really know it at the time but I thought okay history of ideas cultural history is probably where that lives so I did um, a master's and got to ABD in intellectual and cultural history at UCLA and diving into history like that taught me some absolutely critical modes of thinking about the world it gave me an introduction to critical theory, it gave me an introduction to the notion of the constructed self and constructed nature of knowledge. And, I, and also, I went abroad to do my dissertation research in the Netherlands. And um, I, through a long process of kind of nagging doubts, I eventually named that I was dissatisfied with what would what was going to become the output of that academic career. So I, when I would go to conferences for historians and give a paper, I would think, Is this all there is? And am I am I sure that this is where I want my, the result, the end result of my work to be? Because of course I'd studied painting and objects and you know artifacts in the world, and so I was longing to get back to that. And here I'd had this transformative experience in history and all that that implies and the, the depoliticization of that the invention of democracy but you know i had I, I wanted something to show for that to grapple with those questions so without knowing what i was going to do really next i dropped out of my phd program and i was probably 30ish at the time and then just was very underemployed p- pieced together a number of jobs in a kind of patchwork rented a studio started making paintings And about that time, a couple years later, my husband and I decided to start a family, and my eldest of three children was born, and he also has Down syndrome. And I started to pay attention to, while I was making paintings and having shows and doing kind of studio-based work again, I started paying attention to all the material culture that was in his life and was now suddenly in my life. So orthotics and therapy toys and sensory blankets and all these kinds of things. And my imagination was just captured by all the, the way that um, things are an index of ideas, because I was watching the world make sense of who my son was and who I was as his parent. Um, and I should also say my family has a number of um, folks on the autism spectrum and lots of atypicality in general. But it was really my child's birth that brought this home so powerfully. So I discovered in that, in the process of kind of watching my son navigate, even in his early life, all the therapy and all of the medicalization of who he was, I was watching kind of his identity form. And I was also watching the way the material culture of his world was shaping that identity and was projecting an identity onto the world. And I thought, wow, there's a real mismatch here. There's a story about uh, disability and especially about cognitive disability that is what we'd call in education a deficit model of personhood, you know, a notion that um, he is someone to be therapized and someone to be normalized and someone who is going to be forever lacking um, in uh, his assets. And so I thought, gosh, what would a design, what would a designed world look like that would project a counter narrative to that story? What would it look like for people to see the deeply dimensional person that he is? So in the process, I discovered an artist uh, named Wendy Jacob who worked with Temple Grandin, who's a quite famous autistic self-advocate, on a squeeze chair that was based on Temple Grandin's hugging machine that she built for herself. And um, I'll just give you the very quick version of that, that Grandin had designed a machine that she could get into at the end of her workday that would give her a deep pressure sensation by it was a a machine that she could climb into. So imagine a piece of furniture that has a big hollow on the inside. You can get in and it will clamp its arms around you and give you a kind of sensory, deep Mm -hmm. sensory expression. And that, that it for, for Grandin is a kind of um, proxy for human touch that she was not interested in. And so her collaboration with Wendy Jacob was to make squeeze chairs that might be therapeutic for other people who identify on the autism spectrum or with sensory processing challenges. But it also might be a cultural object, because Wendy made chairs that give you, reach up around and give you a hug, powered by a kind of um, a foot pump that, you, that another user um, uh, presses on to create that experience for you. So if you can imagine a chair that gives you a hug, just imagine that. Suddenly then, a piece of furniture, a designed object, is alive with all kinds of questions. It was based on a therapeutic object that was self-designed by a woman who was designing for her own world and her own needs and her own sensibility. And it also then became a poetic object that had lots to say to the culture. So what would it happen if the the furniture of the world became animated? And when I saw this work, I thought, oh, this is what the world could be. Hmm. Like, we could have instruments that provide therapies when they're called for. And they function in the gallery as symbols and metaphors for our shared life. Like, I can't believe this is so magical, like the idea that this could happen. And, and indeed, if I'm not mistaken, um, Wendy's chair design has gone into classrooms that are populated with kids on the autism spectrum. But it's mostly, that work has mostly had its life in the art world. It's, for her, it's more important to frame that as art. She was not interested in therapy at all. She was fascinated by this alternate you know, alternative kind of entry to the sensory world. So when I saw that literally, you know, kind of in between having three kids in five years and just spending a lot of time at my laptop going, what am I really doing? I thought there's a way to make stuff that is deeply resonant with questions. So right then I'm making this gesture where my fingers are locking on top of one another in a kind of clarity of the kaleidoscope where I had studied the making of things in painting and drawing. I had gotten this rich context in history, and then I thought, "Oh, this is the way that all this stuff lines up. All the all the questions about economic worth and personhood and uh, everything that's so resonant in disability politics could be alive in things." Hmm. So I thought, "I need to I need to figure out a way to do this." So the the end of that story, which could be elongated, but I won't, is that I did go back to school to get an MFA at Harvard GSD that has a program called Art Design in the Public Domain, and it's specifically for people who are trying to do politicized design work, and I thought, well, this is a way to bring this stuff together, and so I took classes in anthropology at Harvard, but also at the Media Lab in making things, and um, in the process of that, realized, well, I can, make, I can make objects that look like prosthetics and assistive tech, um, but that also do the work of art, and Uh, Eventually, I pitched myself to an engineering school as someone who could work in adaptive and assistive technology, but not the stuff that you think. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can dig into that a little bit more, but that is my not-so-short, medium-sized history. Mm -hmm. I was thinking while
0: you were talking about how I first came across your work through your blog, Abler, and I remember the first time I read it, and I read the entire blog, Mm -hmm. every single post, (laughs) which was by that point, two or three years of posts, I think. Yeah. Um, and I had that experience of like, wow, this is magic. Oh, wow. Um, and the kind of like sense of wonder around um, what something, the, the ideas that you have exposed me to that I just never thought about before, which are that um, material pr- production doesn't just have to be functional, that it mm. has all these other social and cultural relational purposes. And um So I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the strategy of that sort of tech journalism that Mm -hmm. you were doing through Abler and how that may be related to some of the critical design stuff that you were working on maybe in your graduate degree.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I very instinctively, again, you know, had very small children, including one that um, just needed some attention um, in those early years in particular. And I was trying to think, like, how do I migrate my practice, given what I've found out and I've dropped out of my PhD program? So I, it, literally, it, it sort of grew from a kind of necessity being the mother of invention. I had a lot of physical and bodily material constraints. And I thought, well, what do I have? I wanted to reinvent my own personal website, but I didn't want it to be a gallery site online. I thought, how can I make this into a place that is actually collegial and doing things that um, will connect me to a community of people, and and also it was a way to just think out loud the way so many blogs did in two thousand nine, ten. This is before Facebook was, you know, absolutely monolithic and taking over the way people shared stuff. So I was I was looking at blogs like Building blogs, so that you know Jeff Maynard was looking at architecture is an index for all kinds of weird cultural stuff, you know, and like architecture is the frame, and I'm going to call it that. Um, Uh, what's Nicola Twilley's blog called um, about food Um, so I'll I'll think of it but so Nicola Twilley now writes for the New Yorker and stuff but she started also as a food blogger but food and politics not Mm. food as like recipes or even food and travel but food as politics and infrastructure and then pruned that looks at landscape architecture same way so I was like wow I was thinking wow what I'd actually like to do is to Write some texts about prosthetics and assistive technology, um, but not quite in the way you think, and to mix by the magazine style of the blog and make adjacent to one another some of the mainstream prosthetics that you see in the world. So, like prosthetic robotic limbs and the kind of futuristic, you know, the promise of that technology that everybody thinks of when they think of prosthetics and assistive tech, alongside the stuff I was seeing in my son's life, like. Um, body socks that are these stretchy fabric envelopes that you get into to kind of regulate your sensory um, apparatus. Like, that's a really interesting, Mm low-tech, much more enigmatic prosthetic, but a prosthetic nonetheless. And then I was mixing those alongside artists who were dealing with the body and the politics of the body and making wearable stuff. So this could be any number of people, you know, like Lucy Orta or... um, uh, you know any uh, Mary Mattingly and uh, there are all these people who are making wearable kinds of gear Lauren McCarthy people doing kind of critical design work and objects and artifacts that had to do with the body and about the weird predicament of being a body in the world and i thought if a blog could do this mixing thing where you started to see unlikely resonances between you know the the high tech kind of breathless futuristic prosthetic and then this other like one-off, really weird, poetic kind of wearable gear. Would you also then see the politics in those things as connecting? And let me just tell you, this was so important. I had in my mind a, very clearly a reader, and that reader was uh, an avid Wired magazine and like um, Gizmodo mm. reader, and it was probably a software dev who working in Silicon Valley who eats lunch at their desk. And I was really imagining like there's a giant smelly sandwich like on the desk <laughs> and this person is clicking around on his or her blogs, you know, and the kind of feeds and thinking like, this is a gadget person. And I was, I kept thinking like, can I entice that person to read this stuff? Hmm. Where they go like, Oh, I got here cause you were writing about exoskeletons. And then I got into some like weird, you know, this other much more enigmatic gear And now we're talking about disability in a way that's not about a redemption narrative and not about heroic technology and not about these poor souls getting saved by technology, but about people in their bodies navigating the world with stuff, just with gear. But all of this was very intuitive in a way to write myself into a way of working. So at some point, my colleague Jeff Goldenson said to me, oh, you know, Rem Kohlhaas wrote a lot at the early part of his career, like found a way actually to work by naming and theorizing Mm. and then made a space for him to work so then I was able to we can talk about this more if you want to but it was Abler that actually laid a path for me to go oh there's a way of doing this stuff you know and having a point of view and being really strong-headed about it so yeah
0: that makes a lot of sense it makes me think of um conversations that we have in academia a lot about how writing is a type of making and Mm -hmm. thinking yeah And there's actually quite a bit of like psychological research and, you know, stuff about that and kind of behind the the it's a justification for why writing every day is important. But writing can also take many forms. And um, that's right. It's kind of like the easiest experimental modality for some people in certain ways. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of think about critical design with you and maybe just define what it means, um, both to other people and to you and to think about some of the ways that your practice may be approaching this a little differently than some of the traditional models for critical
1: design. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I often tell people you can think about design and engineering and art living on a, on a shared narrative arc. So think about the way a narrative starts where there's a kind of premise at the setup, You go upward toward a climactic moment, right, where some critical conflict is happening and there are questions in the air, and then you resolve at a denouement, right? So if you can think about the beginning of a story of a designed artifact as identifying challenges in the world that peak at that climactic moment at questions and then they resolve themselves. Typically, we think of in mass manufactured products. Mm. Like we think, okay, what is a useful solution to that problem? And it only counts as a solution if it goes to scale and it becomes a widget that you can make at this, you know a hundred thousand or a million at a time. So what I often say to people is like, just you've arrived at the other end of the arc at mass manufacturing. Just rewind, right? Rewind back up that arc and land between questions of mass manufacturing. The output of the fine arts tends to be questions. That is the deliverable, right? What do the arts do really well? They juxtapose multiple realities. They defamiliarize and estrange us from our normative life and give us life re-enchanted and new. They let questions hang unresolved in the air, but you know, questions that have different kinds of answers, and there's probity and deliberation and all of that. And that's what the fine arts do. They are enigma that way. Critical design lives maybe just some degrees down from that pure questions. And it traffics, I think, in the realm of use. So there's a, there are tinges and shades of adhering to some of that denouement where there's a little bit like, what's the look and feel of this thing? And what does, what would playing with functionality actually offer to this question? Why? Because when you suggest function and use, you're in the realm of the practical and the necessary and the the ordinary everyday features of our lives, and so you don't get to dismiss it the way you can a fine arts mm-hmm. piece of piece of work or a performance. And by the way, you can a piece of art and a performance can live in a gallery, and you don't have to go there, mm-hmm. right? People who go to those things are asking for that enigmatic experience and asking for those questions. But if design lives in the world, then you can make an unignorable spectacle in public and still have those questions really resonant. Not only that, but for me, I really it did matter to me to have some of the output of what I make. I'm motivated by a politics, a liberatory politics around disability. And we can talk about whether that's a problematic statement, but I guess I'm broadly signaling. I'm trying to work with many allies and self-advocates to say that disability is a natural part of life and that it's coded as disability because it's been, it's a dynamic between bodies and the built environment and that people with disabilities have historically been marginalized oppressed abuse any number of right um uh modes of diminishment so i'm working against that so what it means is that if i can actually work in design in the useful um realm of infrastructure and stuff we all need and furniture then i can suggest um i can suggest the the necessity and the urgency and the the ordinariness of everyday life, you know, but still have questions. I just think it's a really fascinating and fun exercise to do that. Now, I think critical design has come under fire, and appropriately so, in the last half dozen years or so, because critical design has been lauded as this place of pure speculation and design fiction. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see a lot of the art schools and design schools saying, yes, yes, yes. Living in questions and, oh my goodness, useful objects, but that have dystopian or utopian futures around them. And they have the magic of enchantment. So on. And so people script out these scenarios like what if in a world, you know, and the criticism has come from people going like, well, for one thing, uh, very often the blinkeredness of young designers in, rich art school context or design school context play out scenarios that are very much realities for people right now that they ignore are happening. So their dystopian narratives can actually be happening in very concrete places right now in the culture. And so there's a way of ignoring those narratives precisely by making them into the speculative. But the other thing is that I think um, the use value that you could inflect with um, in some critical design stories is often missing so there's this celebration of the slick and seductive storytelling mode of that work and it has no it has no chance of going out and being reappropriatable by people so I'm very influenced by like Ivan Illich's notion of convivial tools I want there to be the what if questions packed in there but I also for Illich convivial tools are open and non-coercive and appropriatable so they're they have a kind of open source disposition and that to me shades a little bit more into the realm of pure function. But I feel like I, I feel like critical design owes its politics to at least, um, trying to be more grounded there, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. I mean, I would like to hear your, your assessment of critical design and the debates in it.
0: Well, um, so something that's interesting to me about Illich and Well, let me back up in a second and say, I remember the first time that we talked about this and my reaction at the time, because I was very steeped in kind of like the history of technology and thinking about how disabled people are denied access. And so it seemed like a luxury Mm -hmm. to think about design as interrogation. But something that I came to understand over time was one that disabled people have been doing critical design for a long time, and in mm-hmm. fact are some of the biggest critics of existing built environments and also makers of environments and technologies that are um, not recognized in yes. history. Yes. Um, but the other thing, and this goes back to Illich, um, is that, uh, so Illich positions design for conviviality against the sort of instrumental logic of capitalism, mm-hmm. and Uh, kind of like function that is always in the service of making productive bodies. And something that I've come to understand from the disability justice movement and also from the history of the independent living movement, the radical disability movement of the 60s and 70s, was that disabled people have also been some of the biggest critics of capitalism and uh, capitalist demands for creating productive bodies. And so that assumption that... um, assistive technologies need to exist purely to make people into better workers Mm. um, has been contested. And so what is really interesting to me about the projects that you've worked on, and they've really inspired me historiographically Mm. um, to think about design histories and also contemporary projects um, where, you know, art is facilitated through the creation of what is otherwise a sort of utilitarian object like a ramp. I'm um, thinking about the work that you did with Alice Shepard and dissent. Um, and we're going to have a podcast episode with her as well. Great. Um, that that is a way of recognizing the value of disability culture outside of um, demands for productive labor. And, um, and that this is also something that the mainstream of critical design is not considered and kind of, or it often has, like, a depoliticized orientation toward um, what it means to be kind of alienated by technology. Like, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, like, user-centered, user-friendly design is bad. We should alienate people and create um, kind of, like, misalignments. And and to me, that's, like, a disability simulation Uh that's deeply problematic, and it doesn't recognize the work that people who are already misaligned with their environments have done to reshape them. And so um, there's, yeah, I just think that this is a really fruitful thing for us to sort of like claim and uh, manipulate a little bit.
1: I want to just respond to a couple of those things. I mean, it's actually been your work that's helped me go like, whoa, yeah, this, all this stuff exists in a lineage and a history that's been completely erased from, certainly from design history. Right. But I also think people fail to, I mean, there's been a lot of coverage, iconic images of people you know, climbing the steps of the Capitol to insist on the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act and what all the movement that that was associated with, but not the hacking culture that mm-hmm. you have also really surfaced. And I think, I think I've been guilty of working in an ahistorical way, because I just haven't known, and also because I was so focused on the making and the doing and the positioning against engineering, and now I'm in a mode where I haven't been doing any design work for a year and writing, and I'm. Reading your book and lots of other books that are just like massive catch up for me to go like how do I actually acknowledge the lineage that this lives in it that wasn't called critical design so I think mm. I actually that's been a learning curve for me I mean I so I can name some of those critiques of critical design in the present but it's it's I I also have failed to recover enough proper histories you know to to see this work as design work and some of that is because design right has also just not included um in it right that 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 I, I've been saying a lot recently that it, you have to remind people that design is making and also unmaking and also remaking like that that is all activity that's included in mm-hmm. design and I think you know those activists in the 70s making their own curb cuts and like that, that 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 was an act of design you know that that was um a very material situation you know of this work Speaking of your book, uh, do you want to talk a little bit
0: about what that project is and how it relates to design? Um, but kind of, I'm I'm sure that the listeners will be interested in the scope of the book, but also how you are designing the project around it.
1: Yeah, so I think this is my, this is the circuitous route kind of continuing in the sense that I think my inner historian is coming back a little bit, you know, I thought that that was like just... Um, you know, an experience in grad school, but now I'm feeling the pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of years doing intensive making, collaborative, making cultural objects, critical design work in an engineering context and constructing a kind of emergent point of view that that making practice was also participating in and embodying. And then I found myself really, you know, in possession of witnessing all kinds of stories that I was not going to be able to engage in a design way. So Um, a man who has advanced ALS who designed um, a residence uh, for himself and for other people with ALS and MS here in Boston. And uh, the story, the origin story of how he got to do what he's doing. So he got an early diagnosis, you know, in his 40s. He immediately thought, what's the place that I'm going to want to live in 10 years? And what does that environment look like? And so it's a really interesting story just from the interior architecture, what's going on for... Uh, making a meaningful and dignified life uh, for AL- people with ALS and ALS, of course, is at the center of the life worth living debate, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about ways that bodies get coded as what? When, when does life become non-life? You know, and it's this—it's about economic productivity, absolutely, and then also about activities that we cherish and hold dear. You know, that they're. So I'm writing about the design, but I'm also writing about people facing very particular moments where they're asking these really tough questions about. If I go on a feeding tube, is my life no longer my own? If I go on a ventilator, is my life no longer my own? And who's going to make those decisions? And Steve Sailing, this uh, landscape architect who uh, became the designer of his own residence, is embodying in form a powerful counter uh, kind of prototype of an environment to say, this is also life. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a, a life. And not just about the design and the technology, but about the ecology of care that he built there too, and about the quality and the dignity of that life. So, I felt like, gosh, these are these are things that I could I could invite Steve as a guest speaker in my classroom. But I really wanted to know for myself, like, where do Steve's values also line up with the kinds of design for anticipatory design? For mm-hmm. he was anticipating a temporal scale for his life that he had not imagined, and that other people don't imagine. And guess what? The you know, a lot of times people expected him to live maybe three years, and he's now 11 years into his diagnosis and what that means, but more like anticipating a time of life that's fundamentally altered, but is life nonetheless. I mean, I just can't get over how profound that is. So the book is about those kinds of in-depth stories where I'm trying to link what people are doing, what disabled people are designing and co-designing for themselves, how those line up with the design history in ways that we tend not to think of. We tend to think of the disability experience as fundamentally other, but it's Mm -hmm. not. And then the structure of the book is to orient this around scales. So it starts with wearables, prosthetics on the body. It goes to products, furniture, housing, urban planning, and ultimately to systems. And I'm trying to ask in, in all of that, what's the, you know, if design is the magical thing that we say it is, and it is nothing more and nothing less than what Maxine Green called social imagination, it is the act of making unmaking and remaking green would say that social imagination is the process of thinking as though things could be otherwise mm-hmm. and and that i will never tire of documenting the moment at which people thought the status quo is not acceptable and i'm going to prototype way into the future you know not as a plucky clever bootstrapping story but mm-hmm. as a as a just a profound determination to wade through a thousand bureaucratic details to see a different universe, Mm. realized in stuff. I mean, I just can't get over it. But, so, and to demonstrate two things, one is you should see disability differently than you already do, and look, disability is at all scales and it affects every lifespan, but also that design is operating at multiple scales. People think of design as the shape of your glasses and the, you know, the facade of a building, even if they kind of dabble in critical design, it's still powerful to think this is operating on the body and then absolutely at the level of infrastructure and systems. So, Mm. Um, anyway that is the project of the book and the project of the book the way all writers will tell you they're writing to figure stuff out right not to transmit certainty Mm -hmm. so I feel like I'm asking myself which is the scale where my work can be um, efficacious in its allyship and in its collaborative design work and do I want to I have a son you know entering an economic order for which his gifts and capacities will never be recognized, not really, not fully. So should I be working at the level of systems because of that? Should I work on jobs? Should I work on um, housing? You know, I, And so I'm, those are very real questions in my personal life and very real questions in my professional life. Hmm. I wonder how has how how the trajectory of your book changed your own situated practice?
0: Um. In a way that I think similar is to what you're describing, or something that I've, I'm observing, kind of thinking about your work is that, it's tuned me into, where to strategically put pressure, to change something, even if it's just like a slight turn, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and that that whole idea of kind of like designing to f- or designing and writing to figure something out as an interrogative process and then to go back and think how is a reader going to interact with this object that I'm making Mm -hmm. um and so I wonder so you're what's the publisher for your book Riverhead. Riverhead. So
1: are there going to be photographs and things like that in your book? Not many. I mean, I think we'll have to be really creative with the online companion to that book mm-hmm. because we're trying to keep it at an accessible price, and mm-hmm. it's hard to do that. Um, I, think I, I think I'll I think have eight or ten photos, something like that. Yeah. Maybe you will do some blueprint-y style drawings. <clears throat> so there are these
0: questions of, like, book design. Yeah. Um, cr- creating a book that has an accessible price so that it can have – the greatest dissemination or an accessible length or format or yeah. even page design. All of these things are so interesting. Academics do this stuff all the time, but we don't often think of our work as design. And yes, yes. so it's been interesting to kind of take a step back and say, okay, but what if we did critical design yeah. as the methodology for designing a book? And yeah, wow. what are the Trojan horses was like the term that you used earlier friendly Trojan horses Mm -hmm. that um, can kind of be brought in and yeah and do some sort of work
1: yeah you know I think and uh, podcasting remains a really interesting not just podcasting I think we're now we're in a moment where people are doing limited run audio essays right Mm -hmm. that are just I've heard an author say I wrote this book but I wasn't quite done with the topic yet and so I'm having six conversations about that and I'm you know Radiotopia is doing Showcase now which is not meant to be like a series that goes on in perpetuity. It's like here is an experience you know, via the audio and I think gosh we're, we are in a moment where if you're trying to reach key audiences and I think that has been my choice of positionality a lot in the same way that I was writing Abler to reach a very um, a technical reader that I knew was deep deep inside industry. It mattered to me because I thought these folks have a disproportionate amount of authority about the shape and tool of the a lot of the technological gadgets that we use all the time and the stuff like iPads that kids like mine will be uh, using in the future Mm -hmm. so I want to reach that person right where they are and I'm willing to make all kinds of linguistic and rhetorical choices to try to reach that person including the friend emphasizing the friendliness of the Trojan horse you know like to that that I I try to use humor and enigma and and the joy of design and the spectacle of it to be like, oh yeah, see, now we're together and we're smiling and we're enjoying the wonder of this thing. And there is a wallop of politics coming around the bend right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm choosing in all those ways, and I think academics, yes, are doing this all the time, of going like, I I don't think my book is targeted at the Wired reader exactly, so I'm figuring that out, like who are the, I have like several kind of constituent readers, but I think paying attention to that stuff really matters. Mm -hmm. It helps you write toward you know, toward those things, but not everybody wants to do that. Yeah, you know, and I mean, a lot of my work is translating uh, disability studies. That's much more sophisticated than I will ever do for a general reader. Mm. And I'm, and in academia, that's like a that's a negative term, being a popularizer. I wear that openly. Like I'm, I think that's kind of part of what I do. Is this sort of like I'm not actually. I don't have the full mind of the scholar, but I do love representing complexity in accessible language. Mm-hmm. I love it all day long. Yeah. I mean, I
0: mean, I think it's sort of like related to science communication and translational research and those kinds of things. And um, I think something that's so striking about your work and why at that first encounter I read every entry of your blog and then immediately wrote you a, like fan mail about it was that um, there – the sort of, like, ethical and political moves are both apparent and subtle in effective ways. Mm. And I think about Karen Barad, mm. who's a feminist physicist, and she, um, you know, says this thing about the political or ethical move, which is that you're all you're doing is pointing out how differences get made and why they matter. Mm. And, and that's, like, really clearly the project that you had is you know here are the different ways that the world got constructed here's why this matters and that's really all it is when we talk about the ethics or politics of design and um, and it's really easy to get caught up in kind of like jargon and specialist language but like at the end of the day we're literally just asking the question how did this difference get made and why should yeah. we care about it yes so it's interesting to think about strategies for addressing that and like figuring out the sites where that happens and um and we've been here for the sketch model pedagogy workshop that you've been organizing and so i wonder if you could just say a little bit about um sketch model as a project Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of the philosophy and intervention and then um, if you have any reflections on sort of the pedagogical conversations we've
1: been having Yeah I mean I think it's a perfect follow on to the thing that you just said which is that it's as simple and as profound as like where are the differences and I think especially in design or art where do we see the differences where's the material evidence of those differences and why do they matter mm-hmm. you know and I think that uh, that Making that available to people is the work of culture, right? It's, it's certainly the work of critical design in its own, that's a particular inflection. But it's also the work of the arts. And that is the other big animus, I think for my what I do, and that is continuing to valorize and defend and absolutely hold space for questions. What, how does difference get made? and why does it matter? But also what is the value of questions? Mm. And believing in the power of questions to actually move a culture. And I think some people are just not constitutionally, engineers tend not to be constitutionally capable of, or start this over, Kevin. Engineers, I think, tend not to be constitutionally inclined to value unresolved questions. Mm-hmm. That For them, the measure of impact is arriving at solutions that go into the world and, and scale. And I can see on an efficiency logic why that matters, but I still believe at the end of the day, and I believe it more that I've been four years in engineering school, in the work of culture. To, and what does that mean? It means being really existentially at peace with saying, rearranging the synapses in people's brains so that they think about things differently in that mode of estrangement, also shapes their behavior in aggregate. History shows that it does. History shows that cultures are moved by the work of artifacts and mm. and the fine arts. And so, sketch model, you know, was a way uh, for me to just inhabit more comfortably my uh, training in the fine arts. I spent a long time sort of saying. I'm in design, and so therefore, you can recognize me in engineering. But I found an engineering culture that was also hungry for the language and the tools and the literacies of art. So the Mellon Foundation came to us um, on their own initiative because they were told I know you guys, you know, the Mellon Foundation exists to defend the liberal arts and humanities. They're not, they don't fund engineering, but they said, you know, folks said that we should come to visit you because there's a kind of approach to what you do that's um, in line with what we're trying to do in arts education and the things we support. And we'd had a really nice connection with them. They said, "Oh, we we expected this to look like, you know, bench science or something, but we found studio culture here." And you've just described it—that's in our library and also in our maker spaces. In other words, engineers, when we do it, at least in our curriculum and an increasing number of places, engineering is also is iterative prototyping, social imagination, studio culture. It's not that far from art school, mm-hmm. actually, if you sort of take a bird's eye view. So they said to us, "You know, we we." We're trying to figure out sort of integrated learning, and we said we really are too. And we are not the kind of people at an engineering school who secretly believe that the arts are the handmaidens of, of science and tech, right? That, were, that they're doing the kind of communications work or the complementary critique work or the ethical seminar work, but that actually that it's modes of inquiry in the arts that can influence, powerfully influence engineers to alert them to the fact that what they make in technology is automatically culture, <laughs> whether they want it to be or not. So they need to be actually mm. much more conversant in those languages. But also I think just to, uh, you know, so, so we laid out a project to the Mellon Foundation and said, look, Every, we all in this room can can agree that the handmaiden fallacy, this idea of STEM privilege and the, you know, STEM at the hi- top of the hierarchy, arts and humanities as serving those ends or reacting to those ends or critiquing those ends, that that's dissatisfactory for everybody. So mm. we can agree in this room that the hierarchy doesn't serve anybody. We can also say, however, there's a kind of pitfall in the practice of the humanities that doesn't want to walk toward the the... Deep heart of making technologies either that there's a, there is a complacency and a mode of critique that has its limits also, mm-hmm. and so we said what would a walking toward one another scenario look like? What if you know we could build this kind of structure? So we built a three part and three and a half year set of experiments, including a creative residency program. So we have Mimi Anoaha who's coming um, in the next year, eighteen nineteen. We created four funded fellowships for engineering students to go to um, internships in the summer in arts venues. So one's at Club Passim in Cambridge, a decades-old music venue and music school, which is fabulous. One's in museum exhibition design. One's at the Metal Lab at Harvard doing um, artistic, also a kind of sort of exhibition design. One's at a sustainable fashion and textiles hmm. um, lab uh, company. So... We're, they're doing all kinds of deep in the heart of arts um, you know, non-transactional summer experiences and then we have what you and I are doing right now which is um, gathering counterparts of people who we know are like minded and like hearted in this work to come to campus and for us to convene a kind of Um, affinity finding and consensus building around people who are trying to do not complementary interdisciplinary work for the sake of breaking down silos or connections. That's a kind of tautological argument that I think is tired out, but who are seeking to recover the past unification of these disciplines, um, who are seeking to do the really probing and difficult work of getting Uh, either young technical people or young liberal arts sort of folks to to make good sense of the future of technology deeply situated in power and politics and Mm -hmm. context
0: yeah it's been a really great couple of days and um it's the the method of um kind of like figuring out your dissatisfactions and then staking a claim and um, figuring out solutions at all different scales has been really useful. And I've also just been struck by um, these sort, sort of like epistemological and methodological questions that everyone seems to be having around, um, you know, like how do we change these broader university or other like industrial structures that then guide what kind of knowledge is valued and yeah. what practices are
1: valued um and yeah, because so, so many of these conversations start and end with why doesn't my institution value photography or why can't my tenure track status also include this other stuff mm-hmm. right when actually we're asking much deeper questions mm-hmm. about yeah epistemic infrastructures or i think James Mellisetta calls it but um yeah these are yeah. m- much more it's symptomatic of steam and this kind of thing is much more symptomatic of the kinds of questions we could be asking about Mm -hmm. knowledge and power. Yeah, it seems like when we ask those
0: questions that are sort of like, why doesn't my tenure depend on photography? What we're asking is why is photography not productive in a kind of like capitalist university sense? But a lot of the work that we've been doing, and I think that this is fundamentally the work of pedagogy, like liberal arts pedagogy too, is closer to critical design to say, um, you know, knowledge is a good in itself and it does cultural work. So how do we shift the coordinates of that? Yeah. Um, and then what effects does that have? And yeah. how do we value that differently? Yeah. So that's that's a really helpful thing to think about. And it's been great talking to all the engineers
1: who are just so thoughtful about this. Yeah. And um, It's a beautiful yeah. thing to meet people I mean, the, the status quo is working so well in engineering right now. So it's a beautiful thing to meet people who are, who are precisely troubled by that status quo when they yeah. have so much to gain from, you mm-hmm. know, just benefiting from it. So it's nice to talk to people who also see themselves as civic actors and with a lot of dissatisfactions about how their work is done. Yeah. 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 I wonder what the future holds. I do. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> it seems like we're designing it right now. I hope so. Yeah. Yes. And I do. I think you're right that writing it into the future and making statements and those things have effects they they go out they do an active design and world building as you say and yeah yeah well thank you so much
0: sarah this is a really productive conversation um and a really beautiful conversation i'm glad that we finally got to record one of these and i'm looking forward to seeing how your book goes and sketch model do you want to tell our listeners what your book
1: is called uh, well i'm not sure what it's called yet It's the truth that the title's under under construction so i can't I'm a, i can't do that but i did I, I will say as a coda amy it is beautiful that you and i met through the online space and i i would encourage people to reach out to people whose work you mm-hmm. connect with because that 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 also has powerful effects that is a kind of that kind of collegiality and doing your work in public online makes this kind of thing possible because mm-hmm. we've been friends now for Probably eight years or something. I think
0: so. I think we met yeah. in 2010. And we've sort of been part of constructing a field of work around this yeah. with a few other people. But in
1: tandem with a lot of changes in our own lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and that is how the work gets done. I think sometimes I think academics are a little loath to um, put their work out there on, on sort of fears about getting scooped or somehow their work getting co-opted. I'm sure there's some legitimate fears around that. But Doing more in public helps you actually build the world you want, mm-hmm. I think. So, yeah. It definitely
0: helps you, like, reiterate that world and that work, too. That's right. Yeah. And stay shored up. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hemray, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Meng, Jarrah Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L, and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.